The projector stopped at the beginning of a movie last night in Burbank. Okay. And so a woman from the audience gets up and starts doing stand-up. What? For the, for the crowd. Hey. It's yeah. kind of like a, the Burbank version of In Case of Emergency Break Glass. For sure. It's just like if you're in Burbank and there's like a lull, someone wants to work out their type five. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Yeah, man. What a day. Last Friday before I have a child. Yeah, you're thrilled. Very thrilled. Like this week, I bought a new pair of shoes, vans, and a new surfboard. And I'm Ooh. like, is what am I, what kind of weird psychological stuff is going on beneath the surface that's like causing me to do this like retail therapy? Because I feel great, but I, I have this urge to buy. You're nesting, I think. I'm nesting. I'm like, nest, we've nested hard freaking core. Yeah. Um, it is great. It's freaking cozy over here, dude. Um, kind of springtime Huga. Yeah. Huga? Huga. You know, the Norwegian. Uh, the, the Scandinavian concept of coziness. Hige. What? No, tell me. Hige, like H-I-G-G-E? H-Y-G-G-E. Okay. I think pronounced Hige. Okay. Tell me about it. It's a state of mind and also a design principle that the Scandinavians yeah. have. So, like, mm. think of, you know, big, thick cable knit sweaters. Yep. And coziness uh hot chocolate Mm. you know it's just this idea of being nested and warm and comfortable and that informs a certain design aesthetic where it's Uh, like a lot of soft things a lot of insulated things thickness um relaxation you know it's sort of the opposite of the kind of glass and steel yeah very austere it's it's not it's not brutalist it's not brutalist no it's, it's Higa. I love that. Um, well, I got to say, that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about today. We're going to be talking about diagnostics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that does sound like it's as far from Higa as <laughs> it's possible to be. It sounds like it's going it to be is. uncomfortable and hard. Yeah. Well, here's a ham-handed way to connect Higa to whatever the heck we're going to talk about. So, one animal that can find him or herself in a very cozy situation is uh, a horse, a thoroughbred racing horse, believe it or not. Hmm. I don't think of them as being very comfortable <laughs> animals. I think no. they're being fairly nervous. Yeah, they are. Okay, so that's the, that's what's interesting here. They are typically fairly nervous, but they can be brought into a state of higa, into hmm. a state of ultimate coziness with the help of a goat. A goat. Yeah. So horses, before they'd go race they'd be pretty nervous but the trainers and jockeys and such would want to calm them down so they found that bringing a goat into the stable would actually have this serious calming effect on the racehorse right was it a live goat or dead goat (laughs) it's not like sacrifice no it's like a, a live little helper buddy goat now if you were a rival trainer what you would actually do sometimes to screw over your opponent is you'd sneak into the stable and you'd steal the goat. Mm-hmm. So then the horse would get all, you know, kind of agitated, right? Because his buddy got stolen. Exactly. Kidnapped. And this is actually the origin of the term to get someone's goat. Aha. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But so why, why am I spending all this time talking about goats and horses? Because uh, the goat in this case is a great example of humans 
using living organisms um, to help them in one way or another. Okay, it's employing a living organism to do something that helps. Okay, mm-hmm. so in all of your possible options for all of animal husbandry, yeah, all the things that animals have done to service, mm-hmm. provide food and everything. Yeah, you were like, let me do the one where the goat helps the horse not freak out. I love that. You really got your goat. I've always wondered, like, where the hell does that come from? And that's where it yeah. comes from. But anyways, mm-hmm. so these very helpful goats. Um, are actually a lot like nematodes, roundworms. Uh, yeah, tiny little helper worms. Yep. Science's great little friend, the nematode. Yes. It's a roundworm, C. elegans, so it's C. Dot elegans. So C. elegans uh, were in the news recently because a study found that these tiny little roundworms wriggle their little bodies towards cancer cells. They're attracted to them. They're attracted to the smell. Yeah. Huh. Uh, this is a study from um, Miyagi University in Korea. And what they want to do essentially is put these roundworms on a chip and then have the samples of the lung cancer cells. Specifically, this study is around lung cancer. Uh, they want to put the lung cancer cells on the chip. And then uh, the study found that these tiny little worms will uh, head toward the cancer cells. Uh, and it's about 70% effective. Yeah, that's bananas. So there's a slide, like you think of a slide, and mm-hmm. then there's a little portal that goes left and a portal that goes right. Yeah. You put the C. elegans in the middle, and you have cancer cells on one side and regular cells on the other. Yep. And you're giving the roundworm a choice. Which way do you want to go? Mm-hmm. And so they go toward cancer cells. Yep. And to quote the leader of the study, Shin Sik Choi, lung cancer cells produce a different set of odor molecules than normal cells. It's well known that the soil-dwelling nematode, C. elegans, is attracted or repelled by certain odors, so we came up with an idea that the roundworm could be used to detect lung cancer, right? So again, this is 70% effective, um, and that they're hoping this can actually be improved upon by... um, you know, sort of using worms with a what they would call a memory of cancer-specific scents, okay, if they've been previously exposed to these smells. They don't know why C. elegans is attracted to lung cancer tissues uh, or the smell they produce, 2-ethyl-1-hexanol, but the scientists guess that these odors are similar to the smells of their favorite foods. Which is all totally bananas because C. elegans is an essential tool in scientific research. I mean, it's been used forever because it's an extremely simple multicellular animal. Uh, It was the first multicellular organism that had its whole genome sequenced Hmm. back in 98. Uh, It was the first animal that had its connectome, meaning all of its neurons, mapped, because again, very simple. So you can see how all of its nerves plug together and how it basically thinks. Wow. Very simple. Used for all kinds of studies for aging for anything that you want to play with genes huh c elegans is your guy or gal (laughs) or both because mostly they're hermaphrodites and then sometimes they're male so this is not a critter that they just discovered that likes the smell of lung cancer cells this is something they've been working with forever and they've just all of a sudden stumbled on this other amazing use which to me is like you've been walking around in a favorite pair of shoes for a couple of years and one day you realize that, you know, if you lace them a certain way, you can fly. 
It's really, yeah. it's just like value <laughs> add is incredible on this thing. Yeah, it's amazing. Also amazing is your just sort of at the ready knowledge of C. elegans. It's an important worm, man. It is an important worm. When I came across this thing, I had no prior schemata around the roundworm. It is kind of a little bit like a high school yearbook, you know, that one person that's like, oh, most likely to succeed, uh-huh. class clown. Yeah. This one's like... Most likely it, to smell cancer. Mm-hmm. Most likely to smell cancer. <laughs> most likely to get totally sequenced. Yep. Most likely to have its <laughs> nervous system sequenced. Most likely to be used in aging yeah, research. Yeah, that, that would be a scary superlative to get. Be like, you're most likely to be sequenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That'd be freaky. Yeah. I mean, the people were amazed by it back then. I mean, yeah. it was amazing. Well, the people, I'm still amazed. Again, th- th- there's nothing about C. elegans to me that's like old hat. Like, to me, this is still amazing. I know this is just another day at the office for old Wormy Reynolds, but for... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let's hope that sticks. Some of us are some of us are very downright <laughs> amazed by this. Um, so again, we, we said we were talking about diagnostics today. Um, I think this is just like a fascinating uh, example of a diagnostic uh, device that you wouldn't really think of. Um, also, and we won't get into this, but like dogs have been used to sniff cancer. So of ants. Now, this got me thinking. Uh, these tiny worms being used to sniff out problems within the human body, within the human system, it got me thinking about cyber security and cyber systems and our IT systems. As you do. As one does. So actually, now, uh, instead of employing worms or goats or dogs or ants, when a company or a government agency, such as the Department of Defense, needs to diagnose a vulnerability in their systems, they actually employ hackers to hack them, right? They say, come, try to hack us, and tell us where our vulnerabilities are, and we'll pay you to do it. Ethical hacking. Ethical or white hat hacking. Uh, It's a big industry. Um, I was pulling from uh, an article about four years old, but a lot of it is obviously still rings true, uh, from CNBC. It focused on an ethical hacking platform called Bug Crowd, um, which is uh, very well funded. By As of April 2020, uh, they had Series D funding to the tune of $30 million, uh, venture-backed, of course. And um, when this article was written back in 2018, uh, some hackers they found could make more than a half a million dollars a year searching for security flaws in these big companies like Tesla or, again, the Department of Defense. And it is just what it sounds like. Basically, you get these hackers, you say, hey, try to rob us, try to you know break into our systems, try to do all this stuff. And then when you can identify these flaws, we will pay you a what's called a bug bounty to do so. And this is such a sort of popular and uh, viable, you know, sort of employment track that um, there's now a club at Cal State Fullerton called the Offensive Security Society. It's a club for people to do ethical hacking, right? Um, It's out of the Center for Cybersecurity. So yeah, it's a club where students do this. They participate in um, competitions to do so, kind of like, you know, a mathlete kind of thing. Mathlete? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like that, but for hacking. Uh, It's run by a guy, Mikhail Goffman, who is an associate professor of computer science at Cal State Fullerton. Um, 
And he says the following about his club. The philosophy of ethical hacking is to attack your own systems and networks the way real-world malicious hackers would, with the key differences being authorization and intent. Uh, ethical hackers aim to help the organization recognize and address security vulnerabilities to reduce the chances of being exploited by ill-intentioned hackers. So, not worms, but kind of? Sure. Yeah. Kind of? I mean, you know, you're employing these... I, I guess it's... I mean, one thing that's interesting is like, you know, I, I, you know, a worm, you certainly wouldn't want worms crawling up in your lungs or, you know, I think people get pretty sick from like tapeworms and things like that. So I guess that's maybe where uh, the connection was being made in my brain that I'm honestly realizing right now as we're talking. But yeah, so it's like you wouldn't want a hacker, but in this case, how else could you... Uh, find the problems or your vulnerabilities unless you're thinking like a hacker. And then so these people with good intentions do that. I think it's pretty neat. It's also unique to an industry to have people who are there to find a way for it to break. I mean, if you think about architecture, you know, you draw up a blueprint, you have engineers who consider it, and they say this might not work. Math will tell you that this support beam is going to fall down. This buttress is not going to fly whatever it is, mm-hmm. but you don't build the thing and then have somebody go through and try and wreck it, right? Yeah. It's all there beforehand, and hopefully the math holds up. Yeah. On the other hand, if you think about something like fashion, there would be people who would like wear test stuff or people who would play test toys. So mm-hmm. maybe it's not unique to the tech world, but it is interesting that you have a system that's so complex that there are so many moving parts that you need somebody to just go through and iterate and play with it yeah. and see where where it might collapse and what that looks like. You think about like the CIA or other countries arming or, you know, supporting political parties or, you know, different groups and countries, right, with like the resources of war and things like that. And then you're just hoping that they would never sort of decide to use that for something bad or as this person says, you know, with bad intentions, right? You're encouraging people to like, you know, get good at hacking, in the name of, you know, a, a legitimate gainful employment, but the onus remains on them to, like, not go to the bad side of things. That seems like kind of a potential problem, don't you think? Yeah, but you also have to consider how quickly this world is evolving, mm-hmm. right? Like, you think, well, the Pentagon must have great cybersecurity. It's the Pentagon. They've been doing this stuff for decades and decades yeah. and decades but then you hear a story about an 18 year old who hacked the pentagon it's like oh yeah right because there are young people who are coming online yeah literally and figuratively and who have Ooh. this knowledge and insight and ability to see holes in these systems and just get into them so yeah. you need to talk to these people who are very young who are raised in a system of totally tech and get them you know ideally on the side of good yeah and it, you know Otherwise, Stephen, what are they going to be doing? Getting into trouble. Yeah, get get those TikTokers on the phone. Yeah, as as if they would use a phone. But yeah, I mean, you're. I mean, it's 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 all right here. It's like the Department of Defense. They hire bug crowd to like to help them. Right? You'd think that the, the Department of Defense would be like at the very top of the game in terms of its ability to both hack and to not be hacked. But no, they need private sector to come in and provide these bug bounty hunters. Um, and I mean, you know, private companies have a vested interest in doing so because ransomware is like big business, right? Huge. Getting bigger all the time. Yeah. I mean, 
I certainly heard a lot about it like last year. I mean, we've talked about this before, but the Colonial Pipeline hack happened at the hands of a group of cyber criminals who were acting um, basically like another tech company. It's called Ransomware as a Service, where they, you know, you can, the people basically employ these hackers to do their bidding and then everybody splits the pot at the end um so there's a lot of money in it so you know some of these uh white hat hackers can make at least back in 2018 they were making upwards of 100 or an average of about one hundred forty-five thousand dollars a year but that pales in comparison to the amount of money that changes hands in some of these ransomware attacks yeah, Harvard Business Review did a study and showed that uh, companies paid out an amount to hackers that had gone up by 300% in 2020. So it is happening more, it is happening more frequently. And then when COVID-19 happened, there was an increase in attacks in the healthcare space, Stephen. Why, Brandon? That's a good question. Um, a fellow <laughs> by the name of Kevin Mandia... CEO of cybersecurity firm FireEye says, quote, pharmaceuticals, hospitals, healthcare, public companies, organizations that don't have the talent and skills to defend themselves, they're getting sucker punched. On top of this, the Johnson & Johnson chief information security officer said J&J gets 15.5 billion cybersecurity incidents on a daily, Stephen, what? basis. What? Yeah. That's just a lot. Imagine it's a lot of bots. It's a lot of automated yeah, attacks. Yeah, I mean, okay. But if you know anything about healthcare, mm -hmm. and if you ever talk to people who work in healthcare, they have been frustrated for quite some time about how rudimentary the technology is. Yeah. They were using paper for a lot of their files mm -hmm. for a long time and are now becoming more automated. But yeah. it does seem like it's clear that it's a very vulnerable space. Certainly. And now people are targeting that, which of course is scary yeah steven I, I mean it's like a perfect storm of like a vulnerable place with like a lot of money running through it and the harm that can be done is pretty profound so like you know that could probably also encourage people to pay ransoms right yeah you know who else got a ransomware attack that you should be worried about who the nba what? National Basketball Association. Uh -huh. yeah. Oh, are you saying yeah. that because of my sports thing that I was saying? Like how I'm done with narratives, right? Like I, I'm all I do right now is watch sports. Mm -hmm. You become an American, fully. <laughs> just like you a basic now. dude. Yeah, no, I like sports uh, because it's you know it's unscripted uh, drama. It's great. Uh, that's not why I said that. I said that, Stephen, because it actually happened in April of last year. Okay, what happened? A group called Babook claims to have snatched up 500 gigabytes of data mm -hmm. about the Houston Rockets and warned that they were going to release all of this sensitive information to the world if their demands were not met. Apparently, so far, no demands have actually been met, but it's out there, Stephen. If yeah. you have been working with the Rockets... Mm could be in trouble no i'm not i'm not touching that in organization with a 10-foot pole and of course it's also you know it's a good time to be thinking about cyber attacks and hacking right now because basically there's an fbi bulletin on march 18th um that was released just a few days before Bi biden announced on monday the 21st of march that there was quote evolving intelligence uh, suggesting that russia is like exploring some pretty intense options for potential cyber attacks here in the u.s um of course related to the war in ukraine and tonight the white house is warning moscow could be preparing for potential cyber attacks 
Here in the United States, President Biden says it would be in retaliation for America's actions to counter Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Targets of most concern, banks, pipelines, power grids and water systems. There's no word tonight on when those cyber attacks could take place. Uh, The FBI said it identified 140 overlapping IP addresses linked to, quote, abnormal scanning activity um, of at least five U.S. energy companies. And this actually is interesting because, you know, you just mentioned the bajillion cyber incidents that Johnson & Johnson experiences on a daily basis, right? I do. I was like, that sounds like a lot. Um, So some U.S. cybersecurity firms actually have been kind of giving the side eye to that 140 overlapping IP address number. So and what they're saying is that some of these addresses that were listed uh, don't show uh, any kind of targeted behavior. And then other of these, like they're not geolocated in Russia. I think when you're trying to assess these problems, like I think it's a lot more complicated than a, a basic headline coming from an FBI memo and then what you know Biden is telling America. But at the same time, Biden still proceeded and said, quote, the magnitude of Russia's cyber capacity is fairly consequential and it's coming. So I think it's something to be certainly worried about. Like I've personally wondered, like, where's the big cyber attack? Right. Like like we've heard that it's all sort of on the way and we know full well that there's a big capability, but it hasn't really happened yet. I, I'm in no way saying that I don't think it's going to happen. I personally think it will. I don't see why or how it couldn't, you know, given the fact that this is like a way that Russia, um, who's being just, you know, pummeled by sanctions and all of this, you know, rightfully aggressive behavior by the West, like it's it's a way that they can retaliate on American soil um, reaching over across borders to actually do damage here without maybe necessarily declaring war. I can only imagine they're gonna it's gonna happen, but either way, the headlines are out there like, hey, lock your shit up digitally. It all makes me think of the fact that they recently did a live version of the facts of life with a new cast <laughs> on TV. Yeah. And when you hear that fact of life, you realize that we're obsessed with nostalgia. And I think one way to think about what's going on is that we're experiencing an unwanted sort of nostalgia for the Cold War. Mm. It's coming back around. There's still the cloak and dagger stuff, except now it's all operating on this cyber level. And we don't even know how to really be worried about it, right? Like, if you're going to work one day and all of a sudden all the traffic lights go out and this just happens all the time because you're like, oh, the traffic system got hacked again. Like, then it becomes a part of your daily life. Or Apple got hacked, which seems fairly unlikely. But, you know, something where now you can't stream videos like you want to. Or something like that, where it's just in your face all the time. Yeah. That seems like a version of reality where we have a relationship. But otherwise, it's vague things. I mean, Colonial Pipeline was significant because you could see that it shut down access to gas on the East Coast. Yeah. You could see what happened to prices. Everybody freaked out. Is it going to be more of that stuff or is it going to be, you know, like the NBA lost some data and we never heard about it and frankly, it doesn't matter to us. I feel like it would, could, and probably will get worse than that. I'm trying my best not to speculate because I do think that there's been a lot of speculation in the media of this sort of cyber threat, right? Um, And again, this is like my opinion based on just reading a lot of 
news and reading just a lot of background on just like cyber attacks and things like that. I mean, so we know on the table, we know that the colonial pipeline happened. We know that there are like some of the biggest and most powerful hacking gangs or cartels or groups in the world are coming out of Russia and are likely some way, shape or form being supported by the Russian government or employed by them or at least allowed to operate with impunity within the country, right? We know that this stuff, that's like, that's like fact, right? And now we know that, you know, Russia is feeling the burn of all of the, the sanctions and different things that we've been able to deploy as a weapon towards Russia. And so it just seems logically that that would be a next step for them, short of, you know, some sort of physical attack on American soil. And by worse, I think it's like we saw with the colonial pipeline, like, yeah, shutting down a gas pipeline gets makes the like sows chaos really quickly. It was almost also like a psyops there, too. Right. It was just everybody like it sort of created this like chaos in the region. But I think if you start, like, what if they get into some sort of thing that supplies an energy grid to, like, the Bay Area or things like that? Like, that starts to get really scary, I think. More than just like, oh, shucks, the red light's not working again. You know, I think it gets pretty gnarly pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So it also means that there's a real market opportunity for people who want to get into systems and mess them up or prevent systems from getting messed up. Yeah. And they'll be like our little nematodes working behind the scenes, trying to make things better, Stephen. The helpful little worm that bores you so much, mm-hmm. but still excites some of us on this program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's worm or maybe the helpful goat, because in the absence of the helpful goat, people people get angry. Well, Stephen, we're both back in the barn. Yep. And nestled down for the night without our oats <laughs> and our hay. I think I'll see you next time. This has been Journos. I'm Steven Jackson. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. Take care. So we also wanted to let our listeners know if you have any questions, uh, you got any ideas, you got any tips, uh, you got any anything to share, you can uh, reach out to us via email at journos at journos.net. We look forward to hearing from you. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson. Music is by Nathan Reedy.